0: to Coffee, Eggs and Inspiration. It's a weekly show that goes out over YouTube and all of the major podcast platforms. And each week I sit down with an inspiring person and listen to them tell their story and share it with all of you. This week was no different. I was lucky enough to meet with Bruce Daisley. Bruce is the VP of Twitter here in Europe. He's also the best-selling author of The Joy of Work. If you haven't read it, I really recommend it. And he's got his own podcast show, which is the biggest podcast in fact, business podcast in the UK, Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. Very interesting stuff. So if you haven't listened to that, I do recommend that. He uh, did the talk at Google, so you'll see a slightly different setup in front of a live audience with uh, questions from the audience. And Bruce was kind enough to give me permission to share this with all of you. Please enjoy. Hello, good afternoon. It is afternoon, isn't it? Good to see you're all taking some time out for lunch, which is uh, one of the topics that we'll no doubt get to. I'm super, super excited uh, to welcome our guest today. Uh, I know most of you in the audience. My name's Craig Fenton. I lead uh, strategy and operations for the UK and Ireland. And I also have the privilege of leading wellbeing for Strategy and Operations, GTM for EMEA. So that's the hat I'm wearing today and, uh, and the context for our, our speaker. And I know this is a, a subject close to, to many of our hearts. I'll give Bruce a quick uh, introduction. He, he insisted I wasn't too uh, extensive on this. So Bruce uh, is the VP EMEA for Twitter, Uh, He grew up in a a council estate in Birmingham, and paid his way through university working in fast food chains, and since then has had an absolutely meteoric and impressive rise in the industry. Uh, He's the best-selling author of The Joy of Work. Anyone read it? I've read it, yeah, okay, so a few more copies, Bruce, you, we'll, get, we'll get sold today. Uh, it's a great read, if you haven't read it, do read it, number one bestseller uh, in the Times, uh, and just some really interesting resonant uh, tips about how to uh, make work more enjoyable. He's also got the UK's number one podcast, uh, which is called Eat, Sleep, Walk, uh, Work, Repeat. He spent the 90s... Selling mostly uh, uh, radio time uh, back, back in the back in the day in the in the 90s. He spent a time uh, a long time at EMAP. Uh, then he led YouTube and display at Google. So we're welcoming uh, Bruce back uh, now at Twitter, where he's been for the last seven years. So please join me in giving a really warm welcome to Bruce Daisley.
1: Welcome, Bruce. So, welcome. so what I will say is the book is just six copies behind the number one best-selling business book of the year, which is a book by a guy called Patrick Lencioni, who hasn't bothered to come here as far as I know. So <laughs> I'm just saying that, you know, an und- everyone loves an underdog.
0: So, so, for, so for this day only, you, be, please feel free to get your phones out. Spence it. <laughs> uh, Yeah. Well... <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so we're here to talk about well-being and what it, what, it, what it means to each of us and get your wisdom on the matter. Let's level set to start with. What does well-being
1: mean to you, Bruce? Um, I, I, I'll start by saying what it doesn't mean, because I, th- I find that kind of easier, because I think people's mental state is so complex and nuanced. That, but I think that what we're starting to experience in work right now is this paradox where people have a lot of benefits and perks and a lot of things afforded to them and yet simultaneously they feel burnt out and by some measures about half of British office workers feel burnt out but also people feel an absence of control. They feel like they're not able to actually make any meaningful contribution and it produces this dissonance. A friend of mine is a London Business School professor and he spent some time looking at how people work and he said, you know, you look at the banking sector for point of sort of moving it on where people get extraordinarily well paid and they have incredible perks and incredible benefits but the level levels of depression anxiety and health related uh, illness are massive so it's this extraordinary thing where Everything that you might be expected to be delighted about seems to be there, and it's causing a problem for people. It's causing an issue where people feel, sometimes called affluenza, right, where you feel like you've got all this material wealth, but you feel emotionally, spiritually impoverished. And I think that's one of the challenges right now of, of modern work that a lot of people feel. I should have nothing to complain about, but I just don't feel okay so and
0: fixing that dissonance yeah, well, yeah.
1: I, I think that's a that's a, a big focus for me so specifically i work at twitter and, and it's interesting we've sort of we have like um the, the the life of a mayfly in the sense that it goes up and down and up and down and it's sort of uh it's it's fascinating to watch i'm sure from the outside but uh it, uh, it can be like quite an experience from the inside but um it means it, when we've had bad times at twitter And it's delightful I adore working there. But um, when we've had bad times, I've witnessed in some of my colleagues just a sense of real um, confusion because they feel emotionally engaged with the place but just feel like they can't keep doing it. And and probably one of the biggest votes of no confidence you can ever have is when someone quits with no job to go to, when people feel... I'm not sure I can carry on doing this. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So tell me what the
0: impetus for the book was, because it's, uh, it's really sort of raced, raced away, hasn't it? And
1: where did it come from? Where did, where did the idea come from? Well, obviously, it's the second best selling business book of the year and, and uh, <laughs> number one after this, right? <laughs> um, the, uh, the, what, what it came from was a process of learning and discovery. So I found myself in a situation where. When people had first joined the London Twitter office, it was about a third of the size of this room. It's tiny little place, and there was no doubt it was one of the most enjoyable environments I've worked in. I have to say, when I worked in the YouTube team here, that was quite a, a buzz as well. So <laughs> we, we sort of we, we had a really good environment, and um, and then something went wrong. And I think because I'd low key taken credit for when times had been good, I thought I need to take responsibility for why times are bad. And probably the example. what we often find ourselves doing when we're trying to change anything is we end up adding more to it. To give you an example, I met someone from a charity that said to me, we're trying to fix our culture. And so to do it, we put a three-hour meeting in everyone's diary. No one turned up for the three-hour meeting. And it's because our instinct is always to think, let's put something extra in. Let's add a meeting. Let's do something. Um, And... And I think, you know, my, my interest was what can I actually do to make people's lives better? And the more started, and then I sort of started doing this podcast. And what I discovered very quickly is that you meet a lot of bosses who will tell you the story, the narrative of, of how they fix their work. And then you'll meet people like the London Business School professor or, or people who've done research into it. And the answers are completely different. So you have to pick a side. Do I pick Reed Hastings the CEO of Netflix, who says the secret of success for Netflix is we're a team, not a family? Or do I pick Segal Barside, from, who's a professor at Wharton, who says the most important thing in good teams is they feel a familial love between them? And so you've got to pick. You can't have both. You so got which to. side are you on? So I've, I'm very strongly on the side of the people who do the research, right. the people who do the evidence. <laughs> um, and, you know, if, if you search, a good place to, to start would be to search Netflix on Glassdoor. And you read some, you know. People say it's hunger food. The Hunger Games with better food. Right. Um, so, uh, it's, so. It's, you know, it's, it's just interesting to, to see those. Things. And then I start thinking, wow, so there's all this research done by incredible people, but none of it is reaching people in jobs. So you might not be a manager, but you, or you might not be a boss, but you dream one day of how would I run this team? And then you read some of this and you're like, wow, this is extraordinary. And, and so that was my feeling. My feeling was there were a lot of things that any of us could do to improve work, but it's no one's fault that none of that evidence is reaching the average 25-year-old worker, the average 32-year-old boss, you know, none of it's reaching people. So it's up to us, in a way. Just uh, My feeling was, if you package some of this research into a way that anyone could bring to their team meeting and say, look, I just thought we might want to try to do team meetings a bit more like this, or I wonder if we could consider this for the next time we... Uh, we, we think about our team culture and try and package it in a way that people can sort of bring it along yeah. to start a discussion. Right. It might help facilitate that.
0: Well, uh, very grateful for you all to uh, add this meeting to the, to the diary today for, uh, for well-being. I'm going to ask you a challenging question. So you work at Twitter. I work at Google. In a way, you know, our business is to pump information out in, in, in some way and entertainment and, and, and this sort of stuff. And, you know, the information is almost overwhelming sometimes. Do you feel a paradox between, you know, what you advocate uh, in well-being on the one hand and the organisation you work with? And I, I reflect that on myself as well,
1: because it's something that I think about. Uh, personally, I don't. Uh, I mean, you know, to, put, to give you in context, the average Twitter user uses Twitter for about 10 minutes a day. Um, so it's not this thing where it, it doesn't compete. For example, with the the average time that most people spend watching TV. So it's it's pretty small. In fact, broadly, I would say it's about the same amount of time that people read a magazine or newspapers a day. So, it, so it's pretty small. But I recognise there are some people who use it more than that. I've been really inspired. There's a, a really interesting guy at Georgetown University, a guy called Carl Newport, who's I, I like him because he's he's a subversive thinker who thinks in a different way to a lot of other people. So he's doing a book right now called A World Without Email. Interesting, right? He says he specifically he mentioned Google to me. He said, if I hired the best engineers in the world and I was paying them loads of money, the last thing I would do is give them a personal email account. Right. And irrespective of what you think of that as a thought experiment, what an interesting thought experiment. What would it look like if you didn't give them a personal email account? Maybe you give them a group email account with notifications and updates. We don't give them a personal one. I don't know. It's just an interesting thought experiment. But he wrote a book this year called Digital Minim- Minimalism. And I guess his point of that book was that he, want, he said to people, we often use digital products without being clear of our intention of how we're using them. It's very easy to fill an idle moment by going onto your phone. Yeah. Very easy. We're all guilty of it. And he said, he's not saying that we don't do those things, but we try and be a bit more intentional about why we're doing them. Right. So, you know, YouTube, for example, I'm the biggest fan of YouTube in the world. I, I absolutely adore it. It was the greatest honor to work on it. And I, I think, you know, it's such a force for good in so many ways. But if you're clear about what you're going onto YouTube to do, I think you can get more benefit than... Or TV or Twitter or anything. And so just being a bit intentional about what we're aiming to to use our time for, I think probably is good advice for anyone. Going there to learn something rather than sort of idly graze. Yeah, that's it. Yeah,
0: Yeah. it's it's a great idea. I want to latch on to this point around email. I find your provocation very, very stimulating, because I think about this this deeply. Like most people in this room, I probably get 150 emails a day. Um, Not all of them are very relevant. And I often wonder what the world would, would be like uh, without email. By the way, anyone in, f- in favour of losing email completely?
1: No, it's fif- mm, 50% of the room. There's really interesting of the room. thing. Um, what, what if? There's, there's uh, an anthropologist... Um, he started off by studying monkeys, a guy called Robin Dunbar. Do you you know Dunbar's number? Let me talk you through it. So so Robin Dunbar did this really interesting piece of work where he looked at the the cognitive capacity of monkeys, actually. Monkeys spend about four hours a day... Here we go. (laughs) Monkeys spend about four hours a day grooming each other. So sitting four hours a day, this is about 40% of their waking time, four hours a day just picking the fleas off each other. Now, if it was related to the, the amount of fleas they had, then long-haired monkeys would require more grooming than short-haired monkeys, but it's the same. And uh, he couldn't understand what, what was, was influencing it. Also, in addition, there seemed to be something where different groups of monkeys would groom more or less different uh, numbers of monkeys. Anyway, he discovered it's directly related to the size of the brain and a specific part of the brain. But, um, so he was really interested. So, so monkeys will groom about between 15, 20 monkeys. You never get a group of chimpanzees bigger than 13 males. There seemed to be something in that. He plotted it to, what, to see how many, just on, based on brain size, how many human beings humans would hang around with, how many that they would associate with. So grooming's a very intimate activity. And he came up with this number, 150. It was very much sort of, uh, it was very much a thought experiment. What, what would that mean? He started looking for um, the, the occurrence of 150 in human civilization. And it appears everywhere. It appears in uh, troop numbers, in military battalions going through, through time. It's the average village size in the Doomsday Book. Uh, it's the average tribe size in sort of ancient civilizations. It occurs time and time again. And he reached, so he called this, or someone else called it Dunbar's number. The idea that we're only able to form trusting relationships with 150 other people. That's the the notion of Dunbar's number. The first thing that occurs when you talk about Dunbar's number, people say, I've got 1,000 Facebook friends, or I've got 700 Facebook friends. Uh, But what he says is that... It's, you've got to be really clear. Dunbar's number is people that you would do a favour for. People that you would, you've got some sort of skin in the game. And so I think we all know that there's certain people, if you saw them out in a bar tonight, you'd duck down and you'd try and avoid being spotted. You know, there's, there's not always a trusting relationship. But the interesting thing is that we've created modern organisations where we breach that number where we're expected to stay in touch with lots of people, to be in meetings with hundreds of people and to be on email chains with with hundreds of people. And I think what it's doing is it's creating this cognitive burden where we just feel overwhelmed. Now, Robin Dunbar said the monkeys were spending, the apes were spending 40% of their time doing this. The average Brit spends about two days a week, so about 40% of their working time in meetings. And um, I think just what we've done is we've created organisations that are potentially too big for what humans can deal with. Right. So, you know, the, for me, it starts becoming a really interesting exercise. In, could you make meetings smaller? Could you make teams smaller? Could you stop reducing the amount of dependencies on other people? Because I think we'd find it more satisfying. Minimum viable product. I, I assume you use
0: email at Twitter. Do you? Yeah, we do. Yeah. What protocols, if any, do you have around it?
1: I mean, we've got we've got a very well established norm now that we don't do weekend emails, and I think that's come about by um, our, our CEO is, is he would never be that sort of person, but there's probably the people the layer below him who historically might have been weekend emailers and. I I think we've learned through experience that when we had those high levels of burnout, that we were forced to ask ourselves, what are we doing that probably is unsustainable? So now if someone emails at a weekend and occasionally new starters, senior new starters will come in and email at a weekend, certainly other senior people will email them saying, can you not do weekend emails, please?
0: It's really in, in, encouraging, and it's one of the principles in the Wellbeing Charter that's just been released, by the
1: way. So, good to see we're on the right. But track. the important thing on that is that if someone senior, some hotshot Android person, someone from the ads business, it's it's down to everyone to politely email them saying, "Hey, yeah. we, we've collectively agreed not to email at the Pick weekend. I wonder if you could respect that." Absolutely, absolutely. I came from a culture actually pre
0: pre Google that was always on, and I think it's a corporate choice. I, I completely agree, but it Um, needs to be... Yeah, and
1: what happens with it is people get burnt out. There's really interesting evidence. We can sort of see an A-B test. The banking industry still has very long working weeks. And um, and so what you observe there is 120-hour work weeks. So that's... Sometimes they call it sort of the... uh, uh, the, the, the taxi turnaround because a taxi will drop you off at sort of six a m at home so you can have a shower, put new clothes on, and go back to work. <laughs> but what you observe in those environments is the levels of anxiety and depression are off the charts the levels of um, i mean d- depression if, uh, skin I- skin problems in what, in one case cancer you observe that people just get close to. <laughs> break down really quickly there's okay. also something that you can observe junior doctors so people who work very long hours in junior doctors you can measure how people age by the length of their telomere something related to dna it's the sort of the how long the dna chain is in, in their dna junior doctors age five times faster than their than their peer group uh, peers so working long hours literally kills you
0: well, so it's it's, it's uh, well. There's another paradox, right? Jun- junior doctors and sleep, and sleep yeah. is actually one of the topics you talk about. We've had Matthew Walker, who, who wrote uh, Why We Sleep, uh, here. What's your point of view on the uh, sleep point?
1: I mean, I, look, that book is uh, is just wonderful. It's just as a collection of all the evidence on. Sleep, it's amazing. Uh, the, the interesting thing for me is I hope work goes on a journey like sleep has done because, because it used to be, and maybe when you are at college or maybe you've, you've worked for a boss who claims not to, to need more than four or five hours sleep a night, and what's happened over the last few years is that just evidence has turned up and said that's an opinion but it's not fact. Yeah. Um, so we, we used to have a lot of people who would model this idea that success was working till 1am then getting up and starting it all over again. Um, and what we've, my favourite bit of evidence on that is that the, the biggest piece of work ever conducted into people who claim to not need a lot of sleep was done where they're invited in to have their brain scanned. Because actually, the, there was a genuine curiosity did some people have a brain that didn't need a lot of sleep? And uh, the biggest group of these people ever gathered was, was drawn in to have their brains put through an FRMI brain scanner. Three-quarters of the people who claim to only need five hours sleep a night fell asleep in the machine. And uh, so I, I think the conclusion was that we, we often paint a story that's, that suits what we want it to believe. But unfortunately, that's not backed up by the facts. So if work goes on that straight same journey, because only a few months ago, Elon Musk was on TV yeah. saying, for him, success is working 120 hours More a week. More the competition. Absolutely, right? Gary Vaynerchuk very famously sort of espouses this hustle culture. Gary, Gary V, you know, a big voice in, in what people are uh, trying to aspire to to reach success. He will talk about, you know, it's working 17 hours a day. And unfortunately, those people are modelling a pattern of behaviour that all of the evidence says... Leads to burnout, breakdown, and illness. And there are some pretty famous characters other than those ones. You
0: know, Churchill and uh, Thatcher and Reagan. All of them were famously light sleepers. Or, or yeah, although Churchill used
1: to get up at eleven a.m. Right. and he used to like he famously. If you read anything about Churchill's pattern of behaviour, I don't think he'd, he'd. I don't think he'd survive modern tabloid media. But Churchill used to um, stay up late into the night, drink champagne all day. Uh, he'd have an afternoon nap for two hours every afternoon. And then, he'd, and, and then he wouldn't get up till late in the morning. So, you know, these days, I don't think it would look the, um, you know, if you said to people, I'm not going to be in till 12, because I'm, I'm not getting up till 11, I'm not sure he'd cut it in a modern office.
0: Sounds like a very balanced uh, diet, to, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and actually, some of them who are famously underslept, uh, developed new, neurological conditions that, which is Thatcher sure Reagan related, both
1: died yeah. of degenerative brain disease yeah
0: absolutely uh, Bruce we work in an open plan environment this is very common today you've got a very interesting point of view on open plan environments any tips for us on and how we conduct ourselves in that in that
1: sort of uh, yeah I mean look open plan is um, is it's, it's sort of a triumph of aesthetics over evidence. And so what you normally find is that people report things, first-hand accounts, is they might say, I work in this beautiful environment. And no doubt, you know, you guys have got extraordinarily beautiful environment. But um, they'll often say, I can't get anything done. Um, my, my work experience is that I'm constantly beset with interruptions. And I think that's one of the realities of modern work for a lot of people. They feel... That They either put headphones on to cope with it, or they want to work from home, or they go and grab their laptop and sit in a corner. I chatted to a lot of people. WeWork have had a bad month, haven't they? But I I chatted to um, uh, people who work in WeWorks. And the most popular part in WeWorks is people not sitting at their allocated workstation but going to sit anonymously Hiding. behind plants or going to sit right. in a sort of like. Why? Because people just love, they don't mind the aesthetics of where they work, but they just don't want to be interrupted. Right. And so I think that's the challenge. There was a really interesting piece of work done um, uh, a few years ago, and it's often repeated, called the Computing War Games. It's a really interesting experiment where you take, they take 500 developers, in teams of two and they give them a medium-sized problem that they've got to solve and they can use any computing language and all they're told is you've got to work in the way that you normally work. That's the only thing. And what they discovered was that, these, that you can't correlate the results with the amount of experience that people have got. You can't correlate r- the results with the programme they use. You can't correlate the results with the seniority of the people. The only thing that correlates with the success, and the best results are 10 times, worse, t- 10 times better than the worst results, the only thing that correlates with success is how private people's working conditions were. People who said they were constantly interrupted were right at the bottom. People who said that their their working environment was acceptably private were right at the top. That's it. So then it's extraordinary, based on that, that we optimise work for aesthetics rather than people getting things done. All costs per square foot. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Yeah, we've developed this little protocol in the the team where you can shut the... uh, the uh, metaphorical office store by putting the head cans on.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I chatted to the guy who's Something. building the um, the skyscraper, the new Google building at Kings Cross, and I was just really inspired because he's probably the number one architect in the world. a Guy called Bjarke Ingels, in- incredibly sort of inspiring rock star, handsome Danish guy, and uh, and he uh, he talked to me about he's thinking when he's designing that building, and he said. We've noticed people struggle to work in teams of more than 100. And that's interesting because that correlates with what we just talked about before, right? He said, when you look at historically high high productivity environments, they seem to be where people are enabled... Um, and empowered to separate themselves from other teams a little bit to maybe create their own spaces there's this really interesting building called building 20 at mit mit massachusetts institute of technology mit uh, building 20 i think it's building 20 because it's a number it's confusing i think it's building 20 produced nine nobel prize winning physicists in 12 years unbelievable and uh, so they went and they said what is it about this environment? Uh, it was horrible prefabricated. It's like a porter cabin. It was uh, it had mice. It had wooden ceilings that leaked. The only thing that was uh, that was particular about it was that because it was so rough and ready, people would turn up at the weekend and put a wall up. People would turn up and they would say, oh, "I'm not having that," and they'd just they'd just put some some wood separating them from other people, or they'd, they'd turn their team into eight people that are just together. And so, Bjarke Ingalls said, that's our inspiration. When we're creating the Landscraper, when we're creating the new Googleplex, our inspiration is how can people adapt and build their own environments. So That sounds pretty good. Give everyone walls to put up. That's <laughs> fantastic. Start moving the furniture around. That's the illusion of open <laughs> plan. The illusion of open plan is everyone thinks, oh, yeah, what's going to happen is we're all going to be in like, this open space where people are jamming ideas with each other. That's not what happens. People wander over and say, can you keep your volume down on that phone call? <laughs> Well, that kind of takes
0: us into how people come together uh, when they have something to discuss. So we talked a little bit earlier about meetings. Give us your tips on meetings or your observations.
1: The meetings are a symptom of the problem rather than the cause of the problem, but they're a, a really exhausting symptom of the problem. I always think this, is that if there was like a Freaky Friday of your life where so a child's transplanted into your brain they would observe pretty quickly how much time you spend in meetings and then Pretty quickly after that, how little attention you spend in those meetings, right? How little attention you actually give to what's going on. You're almost, we are almost in this sort of pantomime. I'm present, I'm paying literally no attention. Don't ask me anything. In fact, you know, one of the things that's most terrifying is when it goes quiet and and someone says, any questions, and they say your name. It's like, right, I'm going to have to pretend to be paying attention. But there's a strange paradox, uh, which which is... um, I always think the fear of missing out has been supplanted by the fearing FOMO has been supplanted by FOMO, which is the, the fear of missing out on meetings. Because if everyone around you gets up and goes to a meeting, we immediately have this sense that we've been rejected. Like, why, am I, why aren't I in this meeting? What's happening in that meeting? Can I come to the meeting? So, like, we've, we've got this strange thing that the meetings we're in, we don't pay any attention in, but then we want to be in all the other meetings we're not in. And, uh, and it creates this burden on us it creates this sort of this this gravitational effect on us on our energy you know this is a strange thing uh, when people ha- are required to perform self-control it's exhausting it's cognitive and mentally exhausting yeah. if you have to sit silently in a meeting all day it's it's difficult to explain why you go home exhausted right yeah. all i've done is sat somewhere but you go home Mentally exhausted by having had that burden on you.
0: You're exercising some. I remember. I remember in the uh, certainly in the 90s, when conference calls were the, all the rage. Right, so you had 15 people on conference calls, and you'd ask a question, and somebody had come off. You know, the bare pause, and then the person called on would come off mute and say, "Sorry, can you repeat the question?" I was on mute. No, but you were on. <laughs> you were
1: basically they weren't listening. So uh, we've yeah. started doing a lot. I chatted to a guy who was like a world expert on meetings, and I thought. We're doing better stuff than that, so, but at Twitter, we do a lot of silent meetings. So using Google Docs, the way that this works oh, is it. silent meetings. We, the, 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 uh, it uses just Google Docs, okay, but, we, um, but they're silent meetings. So you turn up at a meeting, it's calendared for an hour or whatever, everyone reads the Google Doc together, annotates it, adds comments. And then normally that takes about fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, and then at twenty minutes you need a, you need someone who runs the meeting. But so the person running the meeting will say, "Okay, feels to me like there's a lot of comments on these two themes." Then you spend about twenty minutes talking about those themes. Normally meetings run a lot quicker; they're way more satisfying, and you get more done in them. So we probably the majority of. Um, Decision making and leadership meetings. We're doing our 2020 plan tomorrow. It's a silent meeting. Um, so, by silent meeting, half the meeting is totally silent, half the meeting is conversation. And well, so, we've d- that's become sort of the norm at Twitter.
0: I've just got, I'm playing that movie through my head and wondering how that would
1: work uh, here. Interesting idea. But how would uh, it not to, work? To, to try. So, so, <laughs> it, so here's, here's the thing. Number one, so, so Jeff Bezos observed this. I don't this. get any free coaches. Jeff Bezos observed this, is that slideware. Whether it's Google Doc slides or whether it's PowerPoint slide, where um, these it creates a burden that's unrealistic. Most most people don't pre-read the pre-read, right? Why? Because we're in meetings. When when we're going to read it? <laughs> okay. Then so so he said we're not going to do any any slides at all. Slides um, they optimize work towards extroverts. They optimize work towards men because men blag their way more than women, based on evidence. And, um, and men talk about things that they know nothing about more comfortably than women based on evidence. And so, to so Jeff Bezos, Bezos said, we only have meetings when there's a document. You prepare a document, then you call the meeting, and a, and a meeting is a decision. Yeah. We've evolved that to we use Google Docs for as for our weekly meeting. So, say if you've got a weekly update that everyone needs to do, everyone puts two lines in there. Everyone comments on that. You tend to get a far better exchange of information information. Um, I, I'm not sure how it wouldn't work. The thing I'll say, one of my colleagues is probably the best advocate for it. He's written something called the Silent Meeting Manifesto, which is, if you're interested in that, you'll find his Medium post. And he, he talks through it. He's done a podcast with me talking through it. And he's done meetings up to 100 people using that format. Really? Okay. Uh, and he says what tends to happen is people's satisfaction with meeting goes up massively. Um, and it just changes the dynamic of the meeting. Because you realise pretty quickly we don't need this meeting as often. right? Or... This meeting feels like it can be different. So we're doing our sort of... It spreads like a virus across our company, really. You got me, Bruce. Have a go, man. I'm going to try it. Have a go.
0: Yeah. (laughs) We'll see how it goes. I'll report back. Um, Listen, I want to ask you something uh, which is sort of not specifically related to wellbeing, but kind of of is. You've got an incredibly busy and and senior job. You're leading an organisation across EMEA. You've got a podcast... You're an author, and I'm sure there's a stack of other things that I could list out that you're also doing. It's a question from the heart. I've I've just started my own YouTube channel and and podcast
1: myself. How do you find the time? Um, I, I see the podcast as my hobby rather than work. I think that's important qualification. So, you know, I was traveling somewhere yesterday. I spent most of the day... Reading most of the time that was like sitting around reading something that I'm fascinated and passionate about, um, and I was I was captivated by, and that was sort of late into the evening yesterday. Um, so I see that as more of a hobby than, and and actually I find it gives me more passion and energy for my job to do that. But yeah, it, it's there are times when it, there there are bottlenecks where it becomes a little bit too much. I think if you ask my partner, there's times where I look like I'll probably take on a bit too much, but um, I've enjoyed having something that's a distraction from work. There's an interesting thing where, um, over the last few years, work has replaced identity a bit. So you might recognise a bit of this that you know that people used to have hobbies. They used to be passionate about things, turn up with their mates, and they'd say, you know, whether they were in a band or whether they they did something that they were they were dedicated to and work has replaced that for a lot of us work is now our identity and i think it's unhealthy it's not only unhealthy for us i think it's unhealthy for um for for just mental well-being as much as anything else well you see actually you see more don't you of the the side hustle
0: that's going on which is kind of a it's a hobby it's a hobby that's sort of serious in some in some way
1: do you see that as important absolutely but I would say that you know the people who get the most nourishment from that the people who dedicate time to it because it's so easy to get to the end of a week and think I've spent zero hours on my side hustle I've spent you know I've given all of my best attention to my job yeah and I think you know it's about if you are going to have that try and dedicate your time to it yeah
0: well um, you've given me some really good tips. Uh, tips already. By the way, are, are those six books purchased? <laughs> so, yes, one <laughs> yes, over here. Come on. <laughs> any, any others? Get, get on the phone. Get the book. It's re- really worth a read. Feel like your agent. I know. I've got one. Uh, you talk about creativity a lot. Uh, this is a this is a topic that's I think increasingly important. You know because. Uh, You know, creativity in a way is the last and most exciting human frontier in a world where (laughs) we're able to lean on machines more and more and more. Talk to me about your point of view on creativity and how we can foster that
1: in the work environment. There's there's a real strange thing that you start observing a lot of people saying, and it's only when you look out for it you notice it. (coughs) But people say, "I had so many good ideas on holiday," Mm -hmm. and um, and there's something, there's, there's a reason for that, and. I came here about three months ago, I think I said this specifically then, so, so, but I, I'll try and sort of say it for new for people. But this, um, if you were to do, like, a rudimentary 15-minute YouTube clip of how the brain works, one of the things that you'd find is that these, these three systems of cognition... And to be honest, the, the more neuroscientists you chat to, they sometimes name them different names, whatever. Neuroscience is a really interesting science because um, brain scanning has only really existed for 20 years. Before that... They used to test things on animals, a lot of animals. I used to be like animal activists, and now I spend all day reading about how monkeys are having their brains damaged. And, uh, and uh, wars. Neuroscience used to advance during wars. Why? Because so many people got brain injuries. They could observe that pe- people's behaviour changed from this brain injury, and so they learn, oh, that part of the brain must be re- related to that. Anyway... Um, now if you look at the brain, there's broadly three systems that run how cognition works. The first one is called the executive attention network. So that's you on your phone typing a text to someone. second one is called the salience network. So while you're on your phone typing a text to someone, the salience network is making sure that the road you're walking across is safe and no cars are going to hit you. So those work in conjunction with each other. That's why you can feel like you can walk down the, f- the road texting and you feel you're safe because the salience network is sort of acting as your force field. And the third one is called uh, the default mode. And the default mode is, because brain scanning is 20 years old, um, or relatively sophisticated brain scanning is 20 years old, um, they've they've struggled to see what it was doing initially. And they observed that the, the default mode is, it's often activated when you do something and then you stop doing it. But here's the remarkable thing, is that if you say to people, when did you have that idea, the situations they describe are when they would be in the default mode. So if you've ever had a good idea when you're coming up the escalator on the tube or, you know, you've had a good idea. Someone said to me, I have all my ideas when I'm sitting and staring out the window, staring out the window of planes, trains, whatever. A good ideas come to me. My favorite example. This is the one I, I mentioned was that the guy who. Uh, a guy called Aaron Sorkin, he wrote Moneyball, he wrote uh, the Social Network film, he wrote The West Wing. He realised he was having all his best ideas in the shower. Uh, so he had a shower installed in the corner of his office, and he says he has eight to ten showers a day. <laughs> and, uh, but th- but it, it, it's just a good reminder, because the, the default mode is sort of like our screensaver. It's sort it's of like our boredom mode. But... We've come to this conclusion, and and in a world obsessed with hustle and productivity, we've come to this conclusion that we can't allow a moment... Of our time to be unproductive if we go to bed and a moment of our time has been unproductive then we've wasted a day and other people have might have advanced beyond us until you look at this sort of genesis of ideas and ideas don't come from constant perpetual busyness they come from moments of our i of our brain giving sort of allowing these ideas to ferment hence why people say you know i went on a holiday and I had three really good ideas when I had an idea for a business, when I had an idea for an app, when I had an idea for a book, why? Because our brain, without this constant extra stimulus going in, is finally being allowed to connect things. So I think you know, being really clear about those things, then you start looking. There used to be an old truism, uh, which was be, beware the busy manager, and it was true because if someone is constantly busy, then there's no gap for cognition, they don't come up with clever new ideas, they don't think how about, and I think the more that we can be aware of that it's why I worry that when people like Elon Musk model 120 hour work week, people think my secret is I need to be productive all the time so I need to be I need to be drinking bulletproof coffee. I need to be, you know, getting up at five to get to the gym. I need to be living Marky Mark schedule of, uh, I don't know if you saw Marky Mark schedule, where he gets up at three, goes to the gym. Uh, it doesn't look like a happy life, but um, but I need to be living this overly scheduled life and the interesting thing is, if you look at creative people, they generally don't do that. So these, there's actually a really nice series of books that you can buy that looks at the creative, the um, the daily routines of creative people. And quite often, whether it's J.K. Rowling, whether it's Charles Dickens, quite often they sort of do four or five hours of intense work in the morning, with no interruption, with sort of no distraction, and then that's it. Really focused work. That's it. Yeah, yeah. That's it.
0: Done for the day. And you've, you've got to schedule the space for it, right? Yeah. I, I, I schedule three hours a week to meet with myself. Probably the most boring meetings I have all week. But, uh, and sometimes I stick to it and sometimes I don't. But it's just to do that. It's mm. to create that space to sort of uh, think. It, it really resonates. I'm going to ask people to step up to the microphone if you've got a question in a moment. So that's your 30-second warning. Uh, as, uh, as you're assembling your thoughts differences, Bruce, between Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, do you see any, uh, is there any relevant uh, difference
1: in the treatment that we should apply to those different age groups? I'm I'm cautious of of those things. While I think, you know, there are superficial things about the use of technology, I, I am cautious about those things. I think quite often it's very difficult sometimes to separate hierarchy from age, you know, Every, every generation has always thought, thought that the generation that came afterwards was somehow trying to undermine society and should be destroyed. And, and I think, you know, that's what generally happens now. It's, I'm a very strong advocate of headphones. But you'll often get bosses and, you know, maybe they've got their own office or they've got a, 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 an EA, a, an assistant sitting in front of them protecting them. But the bosses will say, it's a shame everyone's got headphones on. And they'll make a comment that doesn't reflect the way that work is just very different yeah. so i'm cautious of those things to be honest yeah fair
0: we've got a uh, a, a question here
1: uh hello so you've talked about uh getting your busy name? Al- uh, my, my name is sarah um uh, you've talked about being busy all the time or having things to do all the time isn't there another side where procrastinating all the time like people are between meetings emails re- checking their phone where like how do we handle procrastination how do we stop ourselves yeah I wouldn't, call, I wouldn't necessarily call that procrastination. I would call that switching time. So there's a really interesting thing um, called re- attention residue, that if we switch our attention between two things, it seems that we don't focus on either of them. It's why if you're reading a document and then you just check your texts, you don't immediately feel as connected to the document as you previously are. Now, the evidence suggests that attention residue of switching is it's between 7 and 20 minutes. So... So that's what I would say personally. I would say that sometimes that sense of procrastination comes from we've started something, we go into something else, we come back and the, the sort of the drive that we had to get it done suddenly is dissipated because we're no longer focused on it. Mm. Personally, I, I feel that you know, the realities of modern communication are such that we can't necessarily beat ourselves up too much on this, but the evidence really strongly seems to be If you dedicate your attention to one thing and then another, you get both done far quicker. So I chatted to one guy um, who just said to me, all he aims to do is he writes down his most important thing every morning. And he doesn't do anything. He doesn't open his email until he does his most important thing. And as a simple productivity tool, it's actually quite effective. It's just what you realize is that presentation you've been putting off writing for ages, just required 40 minutes of intense work rather than you go and add a slide, I'll just go and check my, me, I'll just go and uh, just answer that quick ping, right? I'll just come back and do that. And you find it's taken four hours of bad attention, whereas it would have been 45 minutes of concentrated attention. So I think it's just knowing those things. It's, it's also being aware that this, earlier in the day you do those things seems for most people to be more productive in, in getting them done.
0: Thanks for the great question. I have three, for those of uh, you and my team out there, I have three post-it notes in front of me at all times, and it's got WOT, not WTF, WOT, what one thing. And uh, I write down the one thing today, the one thing this week, and the one thing this month. Right. And uh, that helps focus me and, uh, uh, on the thing that matters. Another question.
1: Uh, hi, Bruce. Thank you no? for coming in. I just bought your book. Hey, hey. Uh, yeah. Five that you need now. <laughs> um uh, any tips around managing travel for work and the impact on well-being and your personal life yeah so yeah you know i've not spent a lot of time looking into the evidence of that but i i think the impact of our, of it i can i can feel myself i've i've had about 6 weeks where i've been travelling very intensely and you know and it it you are it sounds by, by your question that you'll empathise that it, it can sort of be incredibly harsh and, and just on, on a sense of getting things done but on also your sleep patterns which I think is probably the, the number one uh, thing that impacts your mood. Um, I've not done anyth- anything specifically on that. No, I, I mean like topic more than anything. Next, topic for the next book. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> or, or, or a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it can be good thinking time I, I, I find if you're yeah, on plane yeah. a, a lot. I was reading something yesterday about um, de- depression, and I was, I was really interested in this and like the number one thing that anyone can do to reduce their feeling of depression is to get a good night 's sleep and uh, and travel especially so, so for example on, on the scale there's a depression scale of naught to fifty one weird scale but um but but prozac is regarded to achieve at best about a 1.8 shift on that a good night's sleep achieves a six point scale wow. shift on that so it's, it's one of these things that quite often i'm not a depressive person but quite often i can find myself saying, thinking right i'm depressed and very quickly i realize no you're exhausted and it's sort of it's sometimes especially travel can can send that wrong signal to us i think. go to
0: sleep yeah i invested in one of these it's an aura ring uh, and it gives Forget, me lots it. of data on how... The, out, how how that work? Uh, well, it, uh, it, it's a biometric uh, readout, so it measures things like um, heart rate, body temperature, wow, oxygen. Right, okay. it, uh, and I don't work for the company, I have no vested interest in it. Uh, but it's pretty interesting, as, just as a simple nudge. Last night you had X hours of sleep. Uh, it also tells you how, how much dream sleep you have and how much deep sleep. Right, okay. That's enough of an advertisement for <laughs> aura, aura Ring. <laughs> Jahan,
1: hi Bruce. Uh, Jahan, uh, my question would be: what, what should my ideal relationship or marriage with my phone look like? <laughs> <laughs> look, I think phones are a reality of modern life, and I think as, as long as you're clear about what you're trying to do with them, um, you know, I don't. I don't personally think that you should. Sub- You know, you should prevent yourself. I I don't go to the extreme. So this Cal Newport guy, he's really clear. Cal Newport says, the digital minimalism guy, he says, um, if your use of the internet is just going on and liking people's photographs, he says, it's all a mirage. You don't have a relationship with those people and you're creating a mental burden for yourself to do it. Uh, So he's like, he's at the extreme end. He's like... Get rid of things because you'll find that you enjoy life much more. So he, he's a big advocate, for example, of um, board games. He says what you get with board games, and, and, and you might have ri- witnessed this, w- when you play board games with people, quite often it fills the room with just like a warmth, a connection. You feel like a real bond with people. The hours scrolling through Instagram doesn't seem to give you so we we sort of we take uh, incorrect signals so he says try and reduce your social group to meaningful connections um so that was a distraction from me using my phone uh i mean look you know i i probably use my phone too much personally so i don't feel able to i start every day with two hours of podcasts about american politics played at 1.8 speed as, as, a wo- as a welcome into the world every morning, I can't recommend anything less. <laughs> but such is the sense of peril that I feel. that If I, if I spend a day not Some listening to what happened in American politics, something bad's going to happen. I sort of feel like I'm babysitting American politics. Yeah. As, as a be- pattern of behavior, it's not a good one. But it, it consequently prevents me from lecturing anyone about how they should use their phone, I think. Okay, and what about in the workplace in terms of like meetings and things like that? Do you guys have policies, like no phone? Yeah, so, um, nice. it's really interesting. The, um, the culture of Uber is an interesting case study. And there was a woman who went in, Harvard business professor called Frances Fry, and she went into Uber to try and fix things. And she observed very quickly that the use of devices in meetings was causing multiple issues. It was causing multiple issues because people were using it as back channels to say things about each other. Have you seen what she's wearing? Have you seen what he's just... Have you seen the state of him? Have you like People were commenting like that and it was creating... A lack of psychological safety that people there was two conversations going on in the room and in addition people weren't paying attention so they said we're banning devices from rooms um and to allow meetings to be faster and to reduce the amount of meetings obviously we do our meetings on google docs so that wouldn't be consistent but there is something about the the relationship there i think saying to people let's focus but half the amount of time we spend in meetings seems to be a good focus
0: Thanks for the question, Jahan. I, I mean, I think about this. You and I are both parents. You've got a 17-year-old and a 15-year-old. I have a 17-year-old and a 14-year-old. Screen time, right? What, what's your view on that? I mean, we all, as parents, think about that and worry about it. What's, how do you approach it?
1: I'm just so inspired by young people, so I'm not going to say anything about them. I think, you know, if you think our generation, you and I, have witnessed Ecological toll that's, that's going to be centuries in the undoing, and loads of young people are taking to the streets and, and doing something about it. So, I'm um, you know, while it's very easy to look at people's screen time and feel that it's wholly malign and it's bad, I, I, I'm sort of cautious. The one thing I will say is there was a piece of work out at Stanford last year that said that teenagers between the ages of 16 and 18 who had no moments of boredom so no moments where they're off their phone at the end of two years they'd thought less about their own future and they'd thought less about their local community so i think the illusion we sometimes have is that phones lead to us feeling more connected and they don't necessarily. Mm. I'm, just, I'm just cautious to blame young people for anything.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I completely agree with that, and I think what's going on in the in the climate change is a, is a great example of the positive uh, influence of uh, social network as, as a
1: way of propagating a, an important message. Shout out, though, the amount of pensioners on that ex- Extinction Rebellion. It's like 18-year-olds it's like and 80-year-olds, I love it. Yeah,
0: we've got lots of time, I suppose. We're using the time it's well. It's all
1: right, though. Good, good <laughs> way to use it, rather than being down the golf club or whatever.
0: Uh, absolutely. Uh, Bruce, I could talk all afternoon uh, to you. I, I, I'd like to ask um, for a top tip uh, to leave us with. You know, if you, uh, if you boil up everything that you talk about in your podcast and your book, what would be the, the one tip that you leave, leave us with today?
1: Um, I think... the the illusion of busyness and the illusion of productivity is actually one of those causes of burnout. So, you know, if we're all sitting there, symptoms of burnout are, um, emotional exhaustion, where one of the ways you might see that is you go to bed wide awake, but you wake up exhausted or, um, the, uh, another one is depersonalisation where the people who, who are around you find way more annoying than they should be I, I sat somewhere yesterday where a guy was making a phone call that I just wanted to <laughs> I, I wanted to put his soup in his lap um, uh, but, but and, like, that's not but it's, it's, it's a sign of depersonalisation and the, the, the final one is um, a sense of fatigue where things that, we, that used to be enjoyable for us aren't as much fun anymore Right there, the symptoms of burn out. And as soon as you start putting symptoms to it, people are like, oh, yeah, I recognise some of that. You know, things that used to be fun, I just don't enjoy as much anymore. Um, and and I think it's a direct consequence of us thinking we need to be busy all the time, we need to be productive all the time, we are trying to cram too many things in, and it's an illusion. It's, it's sort of misdirection, really. Yeah. So I'm a big advocate of of people intentionally trying to Do less, but accomplish more, really. It's uh,
0: great advice. Uh, Everything that you say, in fact, really resonates, and you have an ability to vocalise a lot of the things that we we all think about. So thanks for being an inspiration and a thought leader on the topic. Uh, Bruce (laughs) Daisley.